Today, I am just about at the end of my series teaching on Paul's secrets to happiness. I tell you, I'm really excited about this. This is just real simple stuff, but it's profound. And I've identified 20 things that I've pulled from Paul's teaching. 19 of them came from the book of Philippians. And I've been talking about these attitudes that caused Paul to be able to sing and praise God. Even when his back was beaten, he was in the dungeon, feet and hands in the stocks, facing execution, and he broke out in song to God. Man, if you would like to have that kind of a relationship with God to where you can rejoice in the midst of a terrible situation, you need to, to gain insight into what made Paul that way. And he's, he's shared all of these things right here in the Word. But let me go back to Philippians chapter 4. The last thing we talked about in verse 6, it says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And I talked about that we need to cast all of our care, the responsibility for things over on God and trust God to make things work. Most people are way, way, way too independent, depending upon themselves. And they don't pray and they don't give their cares to God. So we talked about that. But in verse 7, this is the result of being careful for nothing, but casting all of your care over on God. It says in verse 7, "...and the peace of God." which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You know, again, it's going to be really difficult for you to rejoice in the Lord always, as Philippians 4, 4 says, if you are in turmoil and don't have peace in your heart. But on the other hand, if you have peace in your heart, it really doesn't matter what's going on outside. It doesn't matter the storm that's outside. It, it's whether that storm gets on the inside. You know, Jesus walked on top of the water in the midst of a terrible storm, but he had total peace in his heart. He had total relationship with God. Many people think that just because something external is happening that you have to fall apart like a $2 suitcase, but that is not the truth. If you have peace in your heart, you can rejoice and praise God through the midst of anything. And again, I could give a lot of specifics in my life where that exact same thing has happened. You know, I don't know about everybody else, but I know me. I know what my natural limitations are. And I guarantee you, I have survived things and not only survived, but thrived and come through things that in the natural would have defeated me before I began to have God work some of these things in my life. You know, I could, I could point out hundreds of things, but as I've mentioned often, I was an introvert. I was embarrassed in front of people. I couldn't talk and do things. And now I have just literally got a peace in my heart because I cast my care about this over on the Lord. Uh, I could teach on this for an hour or two, but it's because I quit taking responsibility, trying to please everybody else. It's my personal relationship with God. I want to please Him. I want to do what He told me to do. And I just trust the results to Him. I just had a situation come up today where some of my staff, we were trying to respond to a criticism that we had. I gave a response and it was an accurate response. It, I believe, really presented the situation very, very well. And I just asked my staff to look it over and, you know, make comments. Well, they totally changed the whole thing. And I was talking to this guy today and I said, you know, I understand why you did what you did. This is the least liability to us. It is the, uh, it, it will placate my critics. 
And I said, I understand you saying what you said, but it is not an accurate representation. I said, I like to say it the way that I said it. And they said, if you say that, people will take a sentence out of context and they are going to criticize you. And I said, you know what? I am not worried about what people do. I am not going to compromise and say things that I really don't mean in an effort to placate people. I said, I'm going to say what's true. And if people want to dissect it, well, then that's their fault. They're the ones who did that. But I am not going to play this game. And anyway, this to me, you see, it all fits together. I have peace in my heart because I have cast my care over on the Lord. I've prayed. I'm doing what I believe God tells me to do. I can say with a good conscience that I'm doing what I believe God has led me to do, the stance that I've taken. It's because of my conviction. And the Holy Spirit has shown me these things through the Word. And I just, because of it, I have peace. The peace of God keeps my heart and my mind through Christ Jesus. If you are compromising, if you aren't doing what you know is correct, maybe, you know, like this illustration I was using, you're doing something that might be politically correct. It might be the thing that is expected of you. But if it's not genuine, if it's not from your heart, and you're doing it because of a fear of man. Proverbs 29 says, The fear of man brings a snare. I'd rather be true to God. I'd rather speak the truth and speak it in love. I'm not talking about being mean-spirited or anything, but I'm saying you do the right thing, and then if people abuse you, let them abuse you. They're going to abuse you. People, people are going to misquote you. If nobody ever criticizes you, it's because you're ungodly. And I know some of you... Just shocked right there. But it says in Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all those who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It said all, not a majority, are the people that are in these third world countries or a country that's dominated by some other religion besides Christianity. It says all those who live godly will suffer persecution. If nobody criticizes you, it's because you are not living a godly lifestyle. Jesus, of course, is the greatest example of being godly that there ever was. He was the express image of God the Father. He was the glory of God revealed in the flesh. And Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was misused. They took his statements out of context. I'm going to, you know, destroy this body and in three days, or this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they totally missed his context that he was talking about his own body and his physical resurrection. They would misapply things and they misquoted him. And I guarantee you, if Jesus, the most godly person that ever walked on this earth, was criticized, you are just living in la-la land to think that it won't happen to you. Either that or you're compromising. And whatever you compromise to keep or to obtain, you're going to lose. You just need to cast your care over on the Lord. Do, you know, have a relationship with God. All of these things that I've been going through, you need to have this personal relationship. You need to love God. You need to, when you come into a crisis situation, whether it's your physical body, finances, relationships, advancement on your job, it could be any of these things. You just need to cast the care about it over on the Lord. Pray. Let God speak to you. If He tells you to do something, do it. If He tells you to do nothing, do nothing. And then just let the peace of God rule in your heart. And notice it says, you, it's, if you had to diagram this sentence, you would have to put in as the understood subject of the sentence, you let the peace of God rule in your heart. 
You are the one that has control over the peace of God. And I know that there's some of you right now saying, man, I've been crying and praying for peace and yet I don't have peace. God just hadn't given me peace. Look at this in 2 Peter chapter 1. It says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Your peace is directly proportional to the knowledge that you have. That's awesome. You know, if you say, for instance, had an alarm go off, that would just typically cause some anxiousness in you. What is this alarm about? Is it a fire alarm? Is there a burglar alarm? What's happening? But say, for instance, somebody came in and told you in advance, hey, we're testing the alarms. It doesn't mean anything. There's nothing wrong. Uh, just ignore it. If you had that knowledge, then you could hear the exact same alarm that a person who didn't have that knowledge heard, and you wouldn't have any of the anxiousness, you wouldn't have any of the worry, it wouldn't bother you, it would be different because of the knowledge you have. If you are operating in fear, if you're traumatized, if you're stressed out, I can guarantee you it's because you haven't let the peace of God rule in your heart because you are believing the wrong thing. You either don't know some truths that God has for you because His plans for you are good and not evil. Jeremiah 29, 11. And God is not going to do anything. He's not going to punish you. God is for you, not against you. If you really knew that, if that was more than just information, if it was a heartfelt thing, I guarantee you peace would just flood in you. You could cast your care over on the Lord because He cares for you. That's what it says over in 1 Peter chapter 5. And because you know that He cares for you, you just would have this peace that floods you and that would lead to a joy and a peace and a happiness that you could go right through the midst of problems and it wouldn't affect you. Again, this is powerful. There is so much that I'd love to say about peace. But again, I'm trying to finish up these 20 things, but I'm promising you that there are many people who don't have peace, they're in constant turmoil, there's constant agitation in their life, and they just think that it's normal. It might be normal for people that don't know the Lord, but for people that know the Lord, you ought to be able to walk in peace. You need to let the peace of God, Colossians chapter 3, I believe it's verse 15, says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. The word rule there is the word that we get umpire from. You need to let the Peace of God, be like an official in a game and just call the shots. And if you don't have peace about it, don't do it. Man, there's so many times that I have just, you know, that God has directed me through peace or lack of peace in my life. I follow peace. I let the peace of God rule in my heart. And this is what it's talking about. It comes as a result of you casting all of your care over on the Lord. And in prayer, you just make everything uh, known to the Lord. The next verse, in verse 8, it says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. This is a passage of Scripture and the principles taught right here that I could literally take a week or two and teach on because this is an area where most Christians today in our modern day society are being corrupted and they don't even understand it. We need to think on things that are true and honest, just, pure, lovely, 
things that are of good report, things that have virtue and praise. And I tell you, the vast majority of people who claim to be Christians, they watch murder, lying, adultery, sexual content, things that you shouldn't be thinking on. The Lord said it's even a shame to speak about the things that people do in silence. It's even a shame to to talk about a lot of the ungodliness that goes on. And I tell you, we are just so far removed from this. Many times Christians will think, oh, I need to be informed and we need to see what they're looking at and all this kind of stuff. And we just are letting the sewage of the world flow through us. And I tell you, it's damaging to us. We need to think on things that are true, honest, lovely, pure, of good report, virtue and praise. Did you know if you were to apply this strictly to what most people read, listen to, and watch, I guarantee you there would be virtually total silence. You would have to turn off most of your television programs. You'd have to turn off most of the music and the news that we listen to, the books that we read, the magazines that we read. Even if you can find a decent magazine, which my wife, she's like the magazine queen. We order things through catalogs and we get catalogs and magazines. Even if you can find a decent magazine, the commercials in it will kill you. It's not good. And I'm telling you, this is just saying that here's the way that Paul was able to rejoice. Paul didn't sit around doing much of the stuff, feeding and, and putting this stuff on the inside of him and then expect different things to come out. You know, it's amazing. If, you, if all you did was eat junk food and things that was unhealthy for you, for you to expect to be healthy, eating nothing but unhealthy stuff is crazy. We have like a fitness health craze in this nation and even governments are now banning and telling you you can't eat this and you can't eat that. Anyway, I don't want to get off on all of that stuff and people talking about being vegetarians. You know, vegetarian's an old Indian word that uh, they use for bad hunter. <laughs> I tell people that stuff's not food. That's what food eats. I'm not against you if you want to be a vegetarian. My personal assistant's vegetarian, but that's her choice. She doesn't push it on somebody or make you feel bad if you don't do it. I'm not against whatever you eat, but I'm saying that we have become so fitness mindset and people will sit there and they are... Uh, just refusing to do this and they discipline themselves and deny themselves and all of this stuff. And yet in the, in the more important realm, the spiritual realm, your mental emotional part, people let the sewage of this world flow through them and yet they expect to be physically, mentally healthy. That's just wrong. That's not the way that it works. I tell you what, if you don't want to have strife and in your marriage and stuff, well, then quit watching people that have strife in their marriage and use it for entertainment and laugh at it and deaden yourself to that kind of stuff. Quit using that as the standard. I tell you, this is a powerful passage of Scripture. If you want to truly have the joy, you need to do what Paul said. He said he thought on things that were true, things that were honest, things that were pure, things that were lovely, things that were of good report, things that had virtue and praise in it. In our society today, if you have a movie that actually teaches good values and there's not something terrible that happened and, you know, all of these things that Hollywood has placed as the standard, that this is the way that a movie is supposed to be. And if it was just wholesome and good, people make fun of that. 
and talk about it as, you know, being just uh, some kind of, a, it's not realistic. It's not uh, reality. Well, it's not the reality of our filmmakers because they live in a totally different world. You know, I saw a statistic once, and I imagine this is out of date now, but this has been 10 years or more ago. But there was a statistic that like 95% of the American public believed that there was a God. Now, of course, not all of those had a relationship with God, but they believed in the existence of God. So that means there was only 5% atheist. And yet, in Hollywood, among the producers and the people that were responsible for making the movies and the TV shows, it was exactly inverted. 95% were atheists. 95% were against traditional Christian, Judeo-Christian ethics. And they were just the opposite of people. And I guarantee you, they are going to infuse those values or lack of values into everything that they do. And if we sit down and watch that, it's going to infect us. Now, I'm not believing that we can just put our head in the sand that we can just hide from these things. We are going to have some exposure to it, but we don't have to have the total saturation in it that most Christians uh, involve themselves in. And I guarantee you, if I was to sit in and just watch all of the junk that's on television, it would depress me. I don't know how people stay encouraged. And I'm not talking about just the movies, just the TV shows, but if you listen to the news, it's really an oxymoron. It is not news. It's prophecy. They are making things up. They are projecting what's going to happen. They are projecting their prejudice and their bias, their political correctness upon you and stuff. And it's more than just sitting there reporting what's happened. They are interpreting those things to say that this is the way it's going and criticizing other people. If I listen to that stuff all the time, I guarantee you it'd mess me up. You know, in the United States, some of you watching in other countries may not be aware of this, but we have such a liberal media that it does not accurately represent things. And so we have developed a conservative uh, media, and there's a little bit of television involved in this. Most of it is radio and things like this. And these conservative talk shows, I think that there's a place for it because you are not getting a fair and balanced opinion on most television news broadcasts. So I'm not saying that they are 100% wrong, but I am saying that they are so negative that they emphasize all of the things that are not lovely and not pure and not good and the things that are not do not have virtue and do not have praise. They just capitalize on it. Recently... In the United States, we had a Supreme Court decision, and I'm not going to tell you what it is because the decision is not the main thing, but it was a victory for the conservatives. And the Supreme Court ruled five to four in favor of the conservative position against the immoral liberal establishment. And you know what? That would have been a cause to rejoice. But instead, I listened to a lot of these talk shows, and one of them in particular said, I know other people are touting this as a victory, but... And then they said, this isn't any victory at all. And they started emphasizing things like the fact that the court only voted five to four. That means four of the Supreme Court members were opposed to this. So it was a very narrow margin. And that the way things are going, it'll just be a matter of time till it's overturned. And they just... Anyway, they begin to start emphasizing every negative thing. And they took away all calls for feeling 
good, like our prayers were answered, like, yes, finally there's positive news, and they put a negative spin on a win in court. Now, am I saying that some of those things they said may not be true? Nope, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there are two sides to every coin, but I'm just saying that we don't emphasize the positive. Even when we win, we say, well, we'll lose next time. Uh, we, we find some way to put a negative spin on it. That is the antithesis of what this verse is talking about. We need to focus on our victories. We need to look at the good things that are happening. You know, again, because of the media, the way that it only presents one side, and I don't believe we're getting a fair and balanced opinion on what's truly happening. I don't have the way to prove this, but I really believe that this is one of the greatest hours that the church has ever lived in. I've seen some statistics. There are more people being born again on a yearly basis now than there have been born again in the entire history of the world. There are people turning to the Lord everywhere. Just in my ministry, we get thousands and thousands of people who are coming alive to God. They're falling in love with God. People are being healed. Marriages are being put together. Finances are coming in. We hear all of these awesome reports. And yet, if you were to ask the average Christian, what is the state of our nation and what is the prognosis for it? It would be overwhelmingly negative. And yet, I believe we are having a tremendous move of God. But we don't focus on that. We don't focus on the things that have virtue and praise. We focus on the negative and then we want to be happy. I'm just telling you, one of the secrets of Paul is that he focused on things that were true, honest, pure, lovely, of good report, things that had virtue and praise. He thought on the good things, not all of the bad stuff. And because of it, Paul was able to rejoice even in a negative situation. If you really want to have true happiness, you're going to have to learn this secret of success. And that is that you're going to have to quit emphasizing and allowing the sewage of this world to just flow through you and then want to be happy and encouraged about the future. It doesn't work that way. The Lord will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him, Isaiah 26, 3. Let me turn over again to Philippians chapter 4. And I'm just going to take something right here and quickly touch on this and then go on to the next thing. But in verse 9, here is the 19th thing that I've isolated that caused Paul to operate in this measure of joy where he could praise God in the dungeon facing possible execution and how he could still rejoice. In Philippians 4, 9, it says, These things are those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. So here's a point I'm wanting to make from that. He had already talked for four chapters here in this book, or you could say that we've already talked about these other 18 things that Paul had identified as secrets to his happiness and success and now he's saying, do it. And this is just really simple. But there's a lot of people that have more knowledge about something than they have action on it. And so a real simple principle, if you really want to operate in true joy and happiness, you're going to have to take these truths, not just the 20 that I've talked about, but the truths revealed in the Word, and you are going to have to be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. Let me turn over to the book of James and read these passages to you. And the book of James was written to people 
that were, they call themselves the Gnostics. The word Gnostic in the Greek was talking about knowledge. And they considered themselves to be more informed, more enlightened, more intelligent than everybody else. And so they were all into their knowledge and they prided themselves on all of this. But there was very little action. It was all information. And they thought that they were somehow or another superior. And so the book of James was written to counter this stuff. And the main thrust of what he was saying was right here in the second chapter of the book of James. And he was just telling them that, you know what, you profess all kinds of things, but you don't do the right things. And it's not just what you say you believe. Your actions prove what you truly believe. So here's some of the statements that he made to make that point. He said in verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can, safe, can faith save him? In other words, these people were intellectual and they had uh, faith diagrammed and explained and defined and they could do all of these things, but they didn't act in faith. And so he says, uh, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? These people, see, could talk about being compassionate and talk about all this, but they didn't act compassionate. And so he's basically saying... It doesn't matter what you claim. It's what you do that really determines how things are going to turn out. And he says in verse 17, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. In other words, you can claim to have this, but where's the demonstration, the proof? And this is the kicker right here in verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But won't thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. There's people that sit there and proclaim, Oh yeah, I believe that there's a God. But have you committed your life to Him? Have you submitted your life to Him? Have you made Him your Lord? Romans 10, 9, If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's more than just mouthing the Word. It's more than just having the information. You have to make Him Lord. You have to submit yourself. Trust Him and not trust yourself. If you say, Oh, I believe that there's one God, you haven't done anything that the devil hasn't done. The devil believes that there's a God. The devil absolutely believes it. He even trembles at his name, but his actions are contrary to God. Satan is trying to make himself God. There's people today, see, that will profess, oh yes, I believe that there's a God, and they will say all of these things, and they will profess to be a Christian, but there isn't corresponding actions. If you arrested the average person who claims to be a Christian, and if you arrested him on the basis of being a Christian, you couldn't prove it in court that he was. There isn't enough actions to convict him. That's wrong. And so I come back to what we were saying over here in Philippians 4, 9. Paul had just said all of these things. He says, now, happy are you if you do them. You got to do it. You got to act on this. It's not enough just to have this information. It's not enough to watch a television program. It's not enough to listen to a CD or a DVD set. You've got to put actions to what you believe. 
Actually, it's not true faith unless it is acted on. You know, if we were in a building together and if I said this building's on fire, we're going to die if we don't get out of here. You couldn't imagine a person just sitting there and saying, oh, I believe Andrew. And if I don't move, I'm going to die. If a person really believed that, they couldn't just sit there and say that and not act. There would have to be some action. And there's room for variation in actions because of different personalities. Some people might faint. Some people might scream. Some people might call for help. Some people might run. Uh, Some people, you know, might die of a heart attack. But if you truly believed that you were going to die in a burning building unless you did something, you would do something. A person who says they believe something and yet their actions don't correspond, you are a liar. Forgive me for being blunt. I can quote you that passage over in 1 John chapter uh, 2 and 3. It says that exact same thing. If you say that you know God and yet you don't do these things, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. I'm telling you, your actions are what you really believe. And we've got lots of people today that profess to be Christian, but there's no actions to back it up. They profess that they are trusting God and yet their actions don't back it up. If you're going to truly walk in the happiness that Paul had, then you're going to have to not only have this information and be able to recite it back, but you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to act on these things. Again, I could spend much, much time focused on that. Let me drop down. In verse 10, it says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. What Paul is talking about, this is old English right here, but Paul is talking about that these people had sent an offering to him. They sent books, uh, manuscripts to him. They sent a coat. They did some other things, and they were taking care of him. And he'll say later in this same chapter that this group of Philippians are the only church that ever sent an offering to him after he left the local area. There were other churches that would help Paul with uh, material needs while he was there, but once he was gone, out of sight, out of mind, nobody partnered with him and helped send him to other people except the Philippians. And he says right here in Philippians chapter 4 that they did it twice, and they would have did it, done it more but they didn't know how to get it to him. In those days, people didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the postal system. They didn't have emails. I mean, Paul was in transit to Rome for over a year and he was shipwrecked on an island and they didn't know if he was alive or dead. They didn't know where he was. And so they would have supported him more, but they just didn't have the opportunity to partner with him the way that we do today. And uh, so that's what he's referring to. He says that he rejoiced greatly that their care of him hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful. That means you desired to do it, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And this is my last thing that I've pulled out of the book of Philippians, a secret to Paul's happiness. And it says right here in verse 11 that he had learned to be content. Now, this is significant, the way that it's stated, because he says, I've learned to be content. In other words, nobody just naturally lives in contentment. It is one of the byproducts of being a fallen human being with sin and corruption 
that has come into us that a state of dissatisfaction is just the normal, natural state of things. To be content, you have to learn that. You know, we talk about that we learn to read and write. Nobody comes out of the womb speaking and reading and writing and doing all of these things. You have to learn that. You have to go to school. It has to be a something that is acquired. It has to be taught, systematically taught. Did you know it's not just a matter of getting all the information. If you start a six-year-old with the stuff that is being taught in high school, did you know a six-year-old wouldn't have a foundation to build upon? They wouldn't be able to understand it. It has to be taught, not just thrown at you in whatever order you want. There has to be a systematic, strategic plan to start with the simple and progress to the more complicated. And it implies that it is done over a period of time. Nobody gets an education in one week or one month or one year. You have to do it over a prolonged period of time. Repetition over and over and over. Now, that's what Paul is talking about. I have learned to be content. This is something that he had to apply himself to. I'm sure that there's many people that you went through school, but you didn't necessarily learn very much. You weren't interested You weren't paying attention. You may have been in class, but that didn't mean that you learned anything. They may have promoted you because you had failed the grade so long that you were already shaving in the first grade or something. So you know what? They just promoted you. I don't know what their motivation is, but just because you went to school doesn't mean that you've learned anything. This implies that you have to apply yourself to this. It's something that you have to desire to do. You know, my granddaughter, my wife is a reader. That woman reads all of the time. I mean, it is typical that I'll go to sleep and she'll still be sitting there reading. She just reads, reads, reads all the time. So she instilled this love of reading in my granddaughter even before my granddaughter was in school. And she told her that you're going to learn how to read and you're going to love reading. And she created this desire to read. And I remember that when my granddaughter went to school, the very first day, my wife went and picked her up from school and asked how school was. And she said, well, it was good. But you could tell that there was a disappointment. And she says, so what's the matter? Is something wrong? And she says, you told me that I would learn how to read when I went to school. And after one day in school, my granddaughter was disappointed that she couldn't read. (laughs) She She just thought it was going to be automatic. You go and boom, you learn how to read. And, you know, I was amazed within, I'd say, two or three months, she could read nearly any book you put in front of her. She might have trouble with the words she hadn't heard or something, but, I mean, it was amazing. And by the first year, she was reading, and she is an excellent reader. But the point is, see, it's something that takes time. You just don't go one day and you've learned this. You don't watch one television program and have me talk about some of these things And boom, you've got it. You don't listen to one tape set and you've got it. I believe that the things that I've got on this teaching set could literally transform your life. But you have to apply yourself. You have to learn. You have to show up. You have to be hungry to learn. You have to do the things that are in here. You know, you just take a million illustrations right here from school about people that go, but they didn't apply themselves. They were there to visit with their friends. They were there for the sports or whatever. 
and they didn't go there to learn anything. And I guarantee you, if you aren't focused on it, if you don't desire it and hunger for this knowledge, you won't get it. You have to pursue it in order to get it. And this is the way that you need to look at these things. Paul said, I learned to be content. Paul applied himself to this. All of these things that we've discussed. You know, if you go back to the very first thing when I started this, Paul had a supernatural call and he saw in a vision a man saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. He learned that when you were in the center of God's will, that there is a satisfaction, a joy, a contentment that you won't get anywhere else. He went on to say that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he had learned that it's, it's in losing your life that you really live. He loved God more than he loved himself. Paul had taken all of these things that we've discussed, over 20 things, and Paul was living in this. He had applied himself over decades of seeking the Lord and because of it, when Paul was falsely accused and then beaten and humiliated publicly and then put in the dungeon with his feet and hands in the stocks and no light, terrible conditions, because of these things that Paul had learned, he was able to start singing and worshiping God at midnight, at the very darkest part of the night. And he was able to worship God. And it wasn't just worshiping God in order to get something from God because when the earthquake came, and the feet and hands were loosed, the stocks were open, the prison doors were open, and they could have fled. Paul and Silas nor any of the prisoners fled. So they weren't just praising God to get something. They were praising God because they actually loved God, because they were actually joyful, even in the midst of a terrible situation. I've known some people that will praise God because they think there's something in it for them that's going to help them to overcome. And even though that's true, man, it's another step beyond that to praise God, be delivered from your bad situation, and not even take the deliverance because you are absolutely content right where you are. Paul and Silas were content in prison, facing possible execution. They were just fine. They didn't have to get out of prison. They didn't have to flee to safety to feel good. They were just absolutely happy with their backs beaten and in prison because they were able to minister to people. They were able to bless people and God was using them to touch people. I tell you, these are powerful, powerful truths, but you have to learn it and that implies effort. And so Paul said, I have learned these things. He goes on to say in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That 13th verse is certainly a powerful secret to Paul's success. And that is, he says, I can do all things through Christ. He didn't say, I can do all things, period. He says, I can do all things through Christ. This shows a dependency upon God, a trust and a reliance upon God that caused him to have a peace and a satisfaction and a joy. You have to get to where you are reliant upon him. And then it goes on down here in verse 19. And he says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And the, Paul was writing to his partners. As I said earlier, you know, he had said uh, in verse 15, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessity. 
That's the old English way of saying twice to my necessity. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. He was writing to his partners. He was writing to people who supported him. And people often take this 19th verse out and say, God is going to supply all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. But you know, that is actually a misapplication of this verse. It is true that God wants to bless all of us, whether we partner in the gospel or not. But Paul was writing to people who had, had pursued him, who had intentionally partnered. They were taking their resources and sharing it with Paul so that they could send the gospel to other people and reach out. And there is a special anointing, blessing on people who partner with ministries. You know, we just recently broke ground on phase two of our building program up at the campus in Woodland Park. We've named this whole campus the Sanctuary. And this is going to be over a $30 million project. And in the next 18 months to two years, we're going to finish this debt-free just the way we've done the other thing. We've asked for 10,000 new partners to enable us to accomplish this. And I believe that God's going to give us those people and we're going to get this done. And I made a special little DVD just thanking those people. And I specifically used this verse to say unto them that this promise about God supplying all of your need according to His riches in glory, not according to the U.S. economy, not according to just your job, not according to just your investments and whatever the return on investment is, but according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus, where there's never a recession. There's never a problem. I was using this verse to tell my partners that this is applying to people who specifically partner in getting the gospel out. And I said, man, God is going to bless you so much. He's opening up the windows of heaven and there is a supernatural blessing coming upon you for being a partner with the ministry. And I really believe that. And that's what Paul was talking about right here. And you need to understand the benefit to you. It's obvious the benefit to me when people partner with me. But you know what? You don't understand the benefit to you. Not only are you going to have people in heaven that will come up to you and thank you because you gave and helped preach the gospel and it touched their life and changed them. I mean, that right there is worth it. But the Bible says in Mark chapter 10 that in this life, you will receive a hundredfold return on anything you give up and in the life to come, everlasting life. So there is going to be eternal rewards throughout all eternity, but in this life, you receive a hundredfold return. When you partner with getting the gospel out, the gospel is going to prosper you. And God will open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing so much so that you won't even be able to receive it. I've had so many people come and testify about that and talk about how that, man, since they've been partnering with us, God has just blessed them hand over fist. But this is awesome. And I just want to encourage you with these things. I believe that these 20 things that I've talked about here, primarily from the book of Philippians, are things that could revolutionize your life. And I really believe that if Satan can't get your joy... If he can't get you into discouragement, into fear, to where you're anxious and worried, but instead you're casting all of your care over on the Lord and you're just letting the peace of God and you're continuing to operate in joy. If he can't get you out of that joy, then he can't defeat you. I really believe that as long as you are praising God 
and keeping your mind stayed upon the Lord, you're going to stay in perfect peace. You are going to have joy. You're going to have a continual feast regardless of what's going on outside of you. You might have to go through a storm, but the storm will be on the outside. It won't be on the inside. And I tell you, Paul is a great example of that, as is Jesus and so many other people in the Bible. It can be true for you too.